Hi everyone, welcome to the Echo Podcast, where we discuss how our hearts and minds can be an echo of God's heart and mind, and what that even means in this world. We are Pastor Dan Sinkhorn and Adrian Terulo from Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana. Pastor Dan is Shiloh's main leader, head pastor, and I, Adrian, am the youth leader. Each episode will consist of us talking about different topics and ideals in the Christian faith inspired by the previous Sunday's sermon. We're going pulpit to podcast. We hope you find our conversation enriching, inspiring, and entertaining. This week's episode, we'll be talking about Saul's transformation to Paul. So the sermon this past Sunday started with a bonus sermon on the counterfeit and the I Can movie, and I do want to talk about both of those things, but I'd like to talk about Paul first. Is that okay? That is okay. All right. So Paul began as Saul of Tarsus. And so this is coming from your sermon notes. I took it straight from that. It says, Saul was a zealous and influential figure within the Jewish community. He was a devout Pharisee, well-educated in Jewish law and traditions, and held a position of authority. Saul vehemently opposed the emerging Christian movement, perceiving it as a threat to Judaism. He played a significant role in persecuting early Christians. Saul's life was characterized by his unwavering commitment to the Jewish faith and his fierce opposition to anything he saw as deviating from it. And then we come to the reading of Acts 22, 22 through 29. It was a little bit rocky. Usually I can follow you through like that type of thing because we've had so many hours of conversation together. But honestly, I was lost. Folks, <laughs> you, need to, you need to be here on Sunday morning to appreciate what happened. <laughs> because periodically throughout the year, I will start to read the scripture that I've shaped my whole sermon around all week only to find that I was reading the wrong scripture. Mm -hmm. That I had read the scripture at some point in my preparing and then by the time Sunday morning came around, I started to read the scripture only to find that I had built the sermon around some other part of the scripture or something. And then... I'm just embarrassed. Sure. So this morning, well, I, excuse me, this past Sunday morning, I started reading the scripture and realized that there was a disconnect between what was in my head and what I was planning to preach about and what I was reading on the page. And as you know, I'm rather prone to just owning my, dis con my, my disconnect in the middle of the sermon, I'll just say, I'm lost. <laughs> and I don't know, people in this congregation have become accustomed to my idiosyncrasies and for whatever reason, some seem to find it endearing. But nevertheless, it's embarrassing for me. So I was reading a passage and then felt like it didn't correlate with where I planned to go. Oh. And so I was thinking about Stephen and how Paul was there at the uh, death of Stephen. But in fact, the passage I was reading was when some people were trying to do the same thing to him, to Paul, mm -hmm. than what had been done, that had been done to Stephen. So I was disconnected. And I was trying to rein it all in and get back to my main point, which was about Paul's transformation. Yeah. And yet you were connected, though, too, because with the confusion, it actually inspired me to like dig deeper into the scripture and to read what happened before that. Because I was like, OK, we jumped right in and all of a sudden there's this crowd and they're just like basically saying this man doesn't deserve to live. We must kill him. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait, what did he even say? Like, what were the words that he said that would cause such an uprising? And so I dug deeper, and there was a point in there about him saying that he was present at the death of Stephen. So it was like a couple verses before that. So you were right on track. But I was just confused because it well, seemed like it went along. Thanks to with you, it. I had made... Well, thanks, first of all, to my daughter Bethany for Sunday afternoon at lunch saying to me, Dad, if you're not satisfied with the way the sermon came out, then just try again next Sunday. Yeah. And I said, well, yeah, I guess I could. 
<laughs> so I changed my plans, and uh, this Sunday, this coming Sunday, we'll be doing Paul Part 2. Yay! And what we'll do is we'll read the very passages that you just referred to, because I read your notes, and I thought, chances are I would be wise to go where Adrian went on that. Oh, wow. So I followed your lead, and I went back that far into the passages so that I could revisit the parts of last week's sermon that I didn't feel that I did adequately and then add to it in the way that I think emerged as a result of your prompting and the Spirit's prompting. You know, the, I just want to say that the thing about preaching is, is that it's a very solitary thing. And people find that difficult to understand when they picture a preacher standing in a pulpit in front of hundreds of people. And, but, but the journey that you go through to get to the point where you're going to hang it all out there, because you're very vulnerable in the pulpit. And if you're honest and you want to be faithful to God, then you're standing alone before God with this message that you're hoping is from his heart and mind to and through your heart and mind. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, you're looking at all of these people who are all looking back at you, and you might as well be standing up there in your birthday suit because it's that, you're that vulnerable, you know? And the thing that keeps you sane and makes you feel as though you've done something worthwhile is this feeling of being faithful to God and to God's word. Mm-hmm. And by word, I mean capital W, heart and mind of God, the Logos. So all that to say that, that if there's a reason I feel compelled to come back to this is because it's between me and the Lord, and between me and the Lord, it feels like it's not finished. Mm-hmm. Now, if the congregation benefits from that, all the better. And as I said last week, when we are in the Spirit, of one mind of the Holy Spirit, then we resonate. And when we resonate, then whatever I do in faithfulness to the Lord will probably resonate with you. So there's a really good chance that this coming Sunday, me picking up where I left off and filling in some gaps that I felt needed to be filled will result in something that glorifies God. But either way, I can't help it. I just have to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah, I went back and read the same passage as you did, and one of the things I will address in the sermon. So I'm not telling you now, you have to listen this Sunday. But one of the things I'll address is why they wanted to kill him when all he did was tell his story. And the yes. reason they wanted to kill him for telling his story is because is it made too much sense. Uh. And sometimes when people tell you, that you've got this dead wrong, you have basically two options. Reject it outright, plug your ears and go, nah, 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 right? Or accept that you need to think this over again. I mean, it happened to Paul. Yeah. And now Paul is trying to make that happen to the people that are listening to him. And unlike Paul, so these people are his equals in a lot of ways at least in his previous life. And unlike Paul, these guys aren't willing to let him crack their paradigm open and make them look at it, you know. Yeah. So it turns out that, you know, the the proverbial two-by-four upside the head changes about one in nine minds, you know. I mean, the vast majority of people, you can hit them upside the head with what should be a paradigm-shifting concept, and the vast majority of people will just say, what was that? You know, and then go right back to thinking what they've always thought and doing what they've always done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank goodness that didn't happen to Saul. It's true. Yeah. And by the way, Jesus addressed that when he gave the parable of the sower. He said, you sow seed, a lot of it falls into rocks, A lot of it falls on hard soil. Some of it falls on good soil. So he basically said, yeah, I go around hitting people upside the head with my Holy Spirit two by four, and one or two of them actually come around. The rest of them, it just never develops into anything. 
Yeah. So in this in the story, and I'm not gonna give a spoiler alert. I'll let you do that on Sunday. Um, but basically, I guess it, he's now referred to as Paul, right? In mm-hmm. this place in Scripture, he is Paul now. Um, but he's giving his testimony. Yeah. And you know, if you were just looking at this passage. He gives his testimony, and then the whole crowd is like in a riot, and they're like, you must be killed. How encouraging to give your testimony, right? I mean, that's scary. Um, But then when you look at the seed sower um, parable, basically Jesus is saying, yes, I know. Like, this is going to happen, but do it anyway. I'm encouraging you. I'm with you. Do it. Well, Jesus so. said that if you go out in my name, you can expect your own family to turn on you. You can, fact, you can expect your dear friends to turn on you. Um, I don't... I, I struggle with this. I've struggled throughout my life. I've, I've asked myself, you know, everybody knows people who are radicalized. I, I, we all know people who are just you know, I think the, the phrase is drinking the Kool-Aid, but that's something that's said by people who don't remember John Jonestown, and I do. <laughs> I remember when it came across my TV and there were 900 people that had killed themselves drinking poison Kool-Aid, you know. it's But drinking the Kool-Aid was basically analogous to totally selling out to a radical idea and come what may you know, do or die, and die is the Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. So that's the phrase that, uh, the, the, that's the origin of the phrase, but what it means is is that people, people can become so radicalized that they would commit suicide mindlessly obeying somebody that they've become radicalized or radically devoted to. So I don't want to urge that, and I don't think Jesus urges that. But what he is saying is, is that if you tell the truth about me and it's obvious that it's changed your life and that it makes sense, there's a pretty good chance that some people are going to be really upset with you, you know, and there's going to be a price to pay. And so he's basically saying that while you're not trying to irritate people just to irritate them, which I see a lot of Christians do. It's, just, it's like there are a lot of really passive, apathetic Christians out there who do very little for the kingdom, mm-hmm. except maybe hold down a pew once a week, you know. But there are also people out there who are radically devoted to a very narrow view of Christianity. And the more they challenge people, the more they think they're doing it right because they irritate people. It's like, like, you don't get a prize for irritating people. You get a prize for telling the truth. And if you're wondering whether you got the truth right, there's a sign, and it looks a little bit like people being very upset. Mm. I mean, it's really easy to irritate people, but it's a lot harder to get under their skin and rattle their sense of security because that's what's really going on. I mentioned in the Servant Sunday that for people who have an idea that they've held for years and years and years to have that idea challenged is it's like uh it's like a a threat to their life it's um well i'll give you an example i i was told when i was 25 years old i i was doing something uh in a certain situation where i bent over and there was this loud popping sound that came from my chest And then my chest really hurt for a long time. And I went later to the immediate care center and I explained to the doctor there what had happened and how it hurt. And he said, well, no, you're not having a heart attack or anything. Uh, That is a hiatal hernia. That's a piece of your stomach that decided to push through the sphincter that separates your esophagus from your stomach or whatever. And that's what that was. And he drew me a picture on the white paper on the exam room bed, you know. Well, so I went for 35 years or more thinking that I had a hiatal hernia. And about five months ago, I went and had uh, an endoscopy done for an unrelated thing. And when, when it was over, the doctor said, you don't have a hiatal hernia. You've never had a hiatal hernia. Huh. 
So for 35 years, I thought I had a hiatal hernia. Now, the reason that might have anything to do with this is I had GERD, I have reflux, sure. and I've taken medicine for reflux, and I always thought that the reason for the reflux was the hiatal hernia. But it just turns out I have GERD, which is gastroesophageal huh. reflux. Disease? Disease. Probably. Yeah, there's yeah. a D on the end. Isn't there, there is, yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it's just grr. Yeah, then it would be just grr. Yeah. Which, when you wake up in the middle of the night dreaming <laughs> of gasoline in your throat, grr is a pretty good feeling. So, so, to say the least, I'm glad that I don't have a hiatal hernia. But I have to admit that for a few minutes, I was grieved. Mm. literally felt grief and not because I was grieving my imaginary hiatal hernia <laughs> I was grieving a paradigm that I had lived with for over 35 years I had to admit that I'd been wrong about something for 35 years and that just hurt not that in the grand scheme of things it made any difference because it didn't my life was totally the same after re re realizing that I had that wrong. Nothing changed. In fact, it was a good thing because it means that I won't ever have to worry about having surgery for a hiatal hernia or anything. So, so it was really a good thing. But 35 years of believing something was true and then finding out, you know, it's like in the movies or TV shows when, when you know, this person is truth-seeking and then they find out that they're they're not actually the 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 uh, biological child of their mother or father or something like they they lived their whole life thinking that this one thing was always true and then they found out that it was no longer true that it was something had they'd been lied to they'd been misinformed or they just didn't know any better it's a deeply shocking painful situation it's it's when something that's always been the same changes forever, that's grief. Mm. We associate grief with death and dying for that very reason, but really the death of anything, the permanent change of a thing will cause grief. It's a psychological response. Now, bringing it back to this, this whole theme, Paul is a guy that they respected, looked up to, and thought of as a leader. They were looking up to him as a leader. And I want to sidestep here for a second because you mentioned Saul and Paul and, and a little basic Bible study of 101 here. Saul is his Hebrew name, basically. Paul is his Roman name, okay? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people in those days did that. And it would be a little bit like if I was introducing myself over at the Spanish language church. I could say my name's Dan Sinkhorn, but they would be more comfortable calling me Daniel. They'd say it better than that, but they um. would use they would use the, the name as it is most often heard. It'd be if I came in there and I said, "Hey, I'm Pastor Peter from over there." They'd say Pastor Pedro because uh. it's just natural for them, you know. And so, in a way, this transition that, and, and there are actually other apostles whose names are interchangeable, and that's a whole other story. But all it means is, is that sometimes their names were contextual. Paul became Paul because his Roman citizenship became a critical part of his ministry life, even the way he died. But the fact is is that these people looked up to him they admired him they listened to everything he said they were right there with him when he said we got to get these christians and get rid of them before they ruin the whole thing and now here he is 11 years later back in their midst after disappearing to antioch for a while and he starts telling the story of how he had his paradigm changed and they are furious they are furious. I went to seminary up in Chicago with a guy who was very radically right-wing, kind of ultra-conservative Christian, and he was very legalistic, and he was very anti uh, certain things that being anti to his extent does look a little bit like hate. And he talked about that at times. 
And in a class discussion, something came up about people who are born genetically ambiguous, or what they call a hermorphodite. Mm -hmm. And all I said was, hmm, that would be an interesting situation. I would have to give that consideration, given that I have children who were born with birth defects that change how they perceive themselves and how we perceive them and what we do with that situation. So all I was doing was critical thinking. And not, I'm not kidding you, as soon as class was over, this guy who I guess thought he was my friend berated me and said, you're a sellout. You gave, you gave in, you, you know, you, you sold yourself out. You know, you, you're not, you know, you're not faithful. You're just like Laodicea. I'm going to spew you out, you know, and, and, and this is literally what the guy said. Wow. And I thought, wow, you hothead. Mm-hmm. And it's all part of what informed, well, informs every day of my life and my preaching, but that particular message last week was, yeah, I get it. It doesn't matter whether you are extremely conservative or extremely liberal or extremely whatever. I don't care. What really is the problem is the extreme. <laughs> it's the extremism because, because basically radicalized people are taking the lazy way out because it takes a lot less energy and a lot less skill to pick a side and stay on it come hell or high water. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot more intellect, a lot more compassion, a lot more of everything that is good about humans made in the image of God to try to find balance, to be a thoughtful, compassionate person requires so much more energy Mm -hmm. and is so much more rewarding. And so being a critical thinker is a lot harder than being a radicalized devotee to a certain radical interpretation of an idea. And so what I like to say is, is that there's so many of us who are trying to walk down the middle of the road while the extremists are in the ditches on either side of the road throwing rocks at each other. Mm. And we're getting caught in the crossfire. But the ones who are trying to bravely navigate the middle of the road aren't new, they're not lukewarm. That's not what Jesus meant when he told them they were lukewarm. He wasn't talking about that at all. He wasn't saying be radically committed to one view or the other. You're taking that story. There were seven churches that got seven letters, mm-hmm. and each of the letters said something important about how Jesus views the church and the people of the church or the body of Christ. And if you took that one letter out of context with the others, then it didn't, you know, you could say, well, you're not radical enough. But that's not what he's saying. You know, he's saying, get in the game and be in the game. Mm-hmm. Don't sit on the sidelines and yell at the team on the other side of the sidelines. You know, they get in the game and be a part of what's going on and go ahead and take your bruises and your bumps and go ahead and 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 press forward you know this is what paul says when he says i keep my eye on the prize Mm -hmm. anyway that's good so there are many radicalized people out there and i think that's something i don't know i haven't had as much experience on this earth as you but you know it seems that's a very polite way to say I'm old. <laughs> well, I just don't have as much experience in, like, say, political climates and different things like that. But yeah. I could say that this is the most divisive, polarized climate I've ever seen. Is it? Is that true for you? Or? I, I think it is a, a truly a time that's unique in a sense, but... You know, historically, and and this is why I'm such a a diva, you know, let's face it, I like history because I like history. Mm -hmm. But one of the benefits of liking history is, is that you see patterns. You see that there's a repetition to these things. I mean, I'm amazed at how much 2023 is like 1923. I'm finding it amazing that, you know, in 1918, they had a pandemic that was terrorizing the whole world 
and in 2020 we have a pandemic you know and, and there are so many similarities in in the 1920s there were many disillusioned people especially in europe because world war one was the most horrendous thing anyone had ever seen and could not conceive of anything worse mm -hmm. until we decided to have world war ii which was basically world war one part two mm -hmm. We just took a little intermission for a while, but then went right back at it and they saw nuclear weapons. And so by then, this jaded general population that doesn't really trust God anymore because there was a real anti-God time during the early 1900s and the 20s and 30s. There was a, a lot of, 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 a lot of the, like the social gospels and things like that. that people started trying to interpret God in those days in a more humanistic way because it was difficult to wrap our minds around the destructive nature of humanity and the, and the unbelievable. You know, the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human recorded history. Wow. There have never been more people killed violently in such a short time than that, that have ever been recorded. We, we killed millions and millions of people in the 20th century. And in all sorts of diabolical ways, everything from death camps to nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. I mean, unreal destruction. Yeah. And, you know, while we honor those who fought to provide the freedom that we enjoy, we also realize that the world is a violent place and that evil is pervasive and that there's destruction and death everywhere. And the only thing that stands between that death and destruction and cosmic order is the body of Christ. You know, it's, it's really, you know, I, I've said it, as you know, for as long as we've known each other, but I believe that the purest evidence that you can find of the devil's involvement in a thing is chaos, oppression, death, and decay. Mm -hmm. When you see chaos, oppression, death, and decay, that's Satan. Where you see cosmic order, compassion, grace, mercy, love, that's God. I mean, it kind of sounds black and white, but if we can't find a simple way to summarize, then you know, we get lost in the weeds, you know. So, so I'm giving a really high altitude view just to make a point. Mm -hmm. Like, if you look at the chaos that you are observing and you say, have we ever been more divided? Probably in history there have been other times this divided. Say, in American history there was a civil war. And you know how we settled our differences then? 50,000 men die violently in one battle, mm. like at Gettysburg or Shiloh or one of those places where the technology and the military strategies don't line up. And so we get five to 500 men all stacked up in a great group in the middle of a battlefield and then fire five or six cannons at them until they've been blown to bits. Oh, you know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> it's... And I'm not trying to be gross, I'm just trying to make the point, you know, that we are really good at killing, destroying, and joining Satan in what he's doing. But the cure is to join God in what he is doing. Mm -hmm. And to fight the oppression, the chaos, the death, and the decay. And you don't fight it by using the same methods. You, you, you can't win by trying to do death and destruction better than the other guy. Although, you, you know, you can stop the death. Like, like I'm not opposed, for example, I, I think I just talked myself into the necessity to say something, and this is what I would say. 9-11 was remembered just a couple of days ago. It's two days ago, and I remember it well. And what I would say is absolutely we had to go get those guys and let them know that you can't do this. Mm -hmm. This is wrong. We needed to be a source of justice. We needed to give America confidence that when things like this happen, 
our, our government, our military, our collective will, which is what government is at its very best, needs to come to bear, you know. So I don't find anything wrong with having a strong military. I don't have any problem with police officers doing whatever it takes to manage chaos, oppression, death, and decay. I'm fine with that because it's a just thing to do. It's not that I think we should be equally violent in order to, in other words, my friend who, you know, berates me because I don't share his radical point of view about a thing. So he was violent with me because I didn't agree with him. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm trying to draw the line. It, it, it's, uh, it's one thing to have a collective will that is based on good, sound, biblical Christian worldview. You know, I'm grateful for that that we still live in a country as corrupt as it has become, we still live in a country that's rooted in a Judeo-Christian biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get our sense of right and wrong. It's being undermined worse now than ever in American history. So, anyway. So, what are we to do with that? Like, we're, let's like bring it in total life application. Um, as Christians, we're going to absolutely run into people who are very radical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I myself have been approached by someone very radical who claimed to be a Christian and did not handle it well. And I know what that feels like. It, and I could totally relate to what you were talking about earlier about how, you know, making someone uncomfortable is not a surefire sign that you're on the right track. You're just making someone uncomfortable. Right. Um, and that, that is one quick way to turn someone away from whatever you're trying to sell them or, or whatever you believe in, right? Um, so, like, what, what are we to do? You know, the, Jesus would say, well, love, love people. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that look like when you feel like you're being attacked? I think you mentioned in the sermon something about when someone is attacking you, it feels like they're holding a gun to you. Did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Well, I'm. You're, you're, you're right, but in a different sense. I, what I was saying was, is when you feel like you are having your trusted paradigm threatened. Yeah. It feels like somebody's holding a gun to your head. Mm-hmm. And that's a great that, that's a great transition because because here's the first thing I think it has to happen is someone has to take responsibility for in the relationship. So you have a radicalized a, a relation, you have a friend with a, a radicalized view of a thing, and you're trying to speak truth and love to them. Well, the first thing you have to do is try to understand why they've been radicalized, why they hold this extreme point of view. And basically, it comes down to the fact that people feel threatened. They are afraid. Most violent behavior, and in this case, I want to make it clear that violent speech, violent attacks on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, these are acts of violence as surely as if you had firebombed somebody's house. It's violent. It's meant to harm. Cancel culture hurts people. It's meant to hurt. Mm -hmm. It is meant to destroy someone that you consider your enemy. So don't say, figuratively speaking here, don't say that you haven't hurt anybody because you spoke against someone that you disagree with. If you spoke against someone you disagree with in a way that was violent, then you have hurt them. You have injured them. And you're no better than the person who walked up to them and punched them in the nose because they don't like them. Mm-hmm. There's just something about you I don't like. Punched you in the nose, right? That, so don't think for a minute that you are off the hook because you didn't physically harm a person because violence comes in many, many forms. So what makes people react violently? Fear. Fear is what always drives people to violence. You don't, well, you don't build an army and arm it with the latest technology and killing weapons, except for the fact that you fear an enemy that is nearby who would take advantage of your lack of preparedness. Right. 
Fear motivates us to create weapons of destruction and violence. Fear motivates us to, to have police forces. and so, so it's not that all fear is bad and that all responses to fear are bad. Because sometimes being prepared for a threat takes away fear. So that's not a bad thing. But when you see people reacting violently, well, I got news for you. If you go out into nature and you see a squirrel out in the middle of the woods and he's standing still and you go to try to pet him, he's going to say, you look like something bigger than me that wants to kill me and eat me. Mm -hmm. And he's going to run away. And if you corner him, even this sweet little squirrel will bite you and terrorize you. <laughs> and, and something really bad will happen to you because you put this animal in a situation where as far as it's concerned, you're trying to kill it and eat it. Mm -hmm. So think about it. It's our human nature, our animal nature, to react violently to something that makes us feel like the outcome is death and destruction. So what is motivating the person who has a radical point of view about a thing? What's driving them? Fear. Because they're reacting violently to something that they feel threatens them. And so you have to get behind the psychology of it and you go, okay, well, let's see if I have a person like my, my, my so-called friend from seminary, the reason he reacted violently to me is because in his mind, I have just taken a brick out of the wall that separates depravity and unchristian, ungodly, evil thinking from right-mindedness. So he's an ultra-orthodox person who feels that because I'm open to discussion about things that I don't understand so that I might come to understand them, he feels threatened because he thinks that that's another brick that's tearing down the wall that separates liberal Christianity from orthodox Christianity. And then you go a little deeper. You go, well, why does this guy, I called him knothead because he had this knot on top of his head. And I swear it would go beep, 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 beep when he got really upset about things. But anyway, this, this knothead, what else is his problem? Okay, well, because... If he's just afraid that the fabric of American Christian culture is in danger, that's not enough to make him act that way. So how does it get personal for him? What is it that is personally threatening him? And you'll probably find that somewhere deep in the place where he lives, deep in the very essence of his being, there is a experience that was so that so violated him that it makes him feel as though there would be no protection against that kind of violation happening again. And this is what prompts this anger. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who holds a radical point of view has this damaged psyche or this traumatic history. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes you can tap into a person's fears so effectively for example, if you're afraid of spiders and you go to a movie where spiders take over someone's house and start, you know, creeping all over everybody and they kill the dog and they kill the baby and they kill, all of a sudden everything that you fear about spiders has turned into something that makes you feel that no spider should ever be allowed to live. And so everywhere you go where you see a spider, you either run from it or you kill it instantly. Mm. Well, they're actually a valuable part of the ecosystem. So the best thing to do is say, well, you can't be inside my house, but you're welcome to be outside my house. Okay. Right? That would be a balanced view of spiders. Yeah. But if you've developed an irrational fear of something that even though you don't have any personal history, your radical fear turns into a radical response. And people who want to capitalize on that can be very gifted. Satan's very good at that. Mm -hmm. You know, taking advantage of things that frighten you. When you want to justify killing 6 million Jews and 11 million Russians and gypsies, and, you know, if you want to justify killing everybody 
that you feel opposition to and you're Adolf Hitler, you know you can't say to people, well, what we're really trying to do here is create an Aryan race. We're trying to reproduce something that's based on false gods and, and, and twisted psychology and everything else. You can't get people to go along with that, but if you tell them that the reason they don't have enough food on their table is because their Jewish neighbors have more than their fair share, they can get behind finding reasons to let people haul off their Jewish neighbors to death camps. And they can just pretend in their mind that they don't know where they're taking those people. All they know is, is now they're going to get more of what they need because those people were getting more than their fair share. Uh, now, all of a sudden, you're looking at our times through that lens and you realize that we can justify oppressing and creating chaos and creating death and decay. We can justify it by saying that there's this big pool of money out there that everybody should get an equal share of and the rich people seem to always get more than they deserve and the poor people don't seem to get enough. You could say that. But that's not logical because mm -hmm. that's not how money works. There isn't this giant bank full of money that some rich people have got greater access to and poor people because money is made by doing something of value and then getting money in exchange for doing it. And the fact is, is a lot of rich people are rich because they created something that was worth a lot to somebody else and they were willing to pay for it. I don't understand why football players get millions of dollars and police officers get, you know, 100000 a year maybe if they're lucky. Yeah. I don't understand, but it comes down to the fact that the football player does something that's worth that much to somebody and that person gives it to them. Mm -hmm. That's how money works. So if you get where I'm going with this is we can convince people that what they are losing is someone else's fault, then we can make them afraid of those people. And we can make them afraid that if those people get more control over things or more power, they're going to do me more harm. And then my fear motivates my response to them. So everybody who's afraid of whoever the president is, doesn't matter if you despise the previous president and you love the current president, or whether you despise the current president and you love the previous president. What makes you despise them is fear, and what makes you love them is a sense of gratification, that somehow you're going to get what you want. Mm -hmm. And so you have to ask yourself, what do I want? So if you're trying to make peace with your radicalized friend, the first thing you have to do is try to understand how they're looking at this situation. If they have a radical perspective on things, it has something to do with the things they're afraid of. And a lot of it is, is conjecture. It's, it's imagined, you know. Um, they've been convinced, you know, uh, these days people, you know, I run into this all the time in ministry life, that people think the Bible says certain things because someone told them it did. It never occurred to them maybe they should open it up and find that phrase and see if it's really in there. You know how many times in the last 50 years I've heard somebody say, the Bible says the Lord helps those who help themselves. And I laugh and I laugh because that's not in the Bible. Benjamin Franklin said it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there are people who are convinced that the Bible says that. And, and you can tell, oh, no, no, it's in there. I'm sure it's in there. No, it's not. Yeah. You know, and these days we have these things on our tables that we call computers where you could literally say, where does the Bible say whatever some idiot told you it says? And the computer will say that's not in the Bible because it's able to read. You know, we got AI now. It'll read the whole Bible and come back and say, don't see it anywhere in there. Yeah. Or, well, I see a word like that in this translation, but not that translation. So anybody can verify pretty much anything. But there's also so much stuff out there on the internet that's lies. Yeah. So I'm just saying. I, I don't know if I answered your question very well, but the first thing you have to do to try to have a meaningful conversation with somebody who's really radically disposed in a certain way is try to understand what they're afraid of and start talking about that. Now, never tell them, never ever say, so... 
you're afraid of this or that. I ain't afraid of nothing. That's what they're always going to say. Don't ever tell somebody they're afraid because the first reaction is to say, I'm not afraid. I just want what's best for this country. I want what's best for my, you know, that's, they'll say things like that. But what you do is you come in very subtly. And you just say, it sounds like you really feel, remember Feel Felt Found? Yes. It sounds like you really feel as though if this political situation continues, this bad thing is going to happen. Is that right? You're darn right it's right. You know, I can understand why you feel that way. And sometimes I've felt that way too. But what I found is that a lot of that is not necessarily present, but it's potential. It has the possible outcome that you're concerned about. But at this point, doesn't seem to be happening. So you're trying to prevent that from happening, right? Yes. So you agree then that it's not happening right now. So we don't need to be violently committed to the destruction of our enemies because they haven't become our enemies yet. What you are committed to is trying to suppress an idea that could turn people into my enemy. Yeah. And it just takes the heat down a little bit. Yeah, de-escalates. Yeah. Yeah. Reframing. It's a, it's it's used in many many uh, circumstances, but reframing. Mm-hmm. So I think um, the feel felt found is a great tool to use. It does require a certain level of empathy. Yeah. And it requires you to also be able to calm yourself mm-hmm. and look at it from a fairly level point of view. You know, mm-hmm. because if someone's actively attacking me. Well, our human nature is to protect ourselves and to, to kind of gear up, you know? Yep. Um, and so we have to just kind of calm that down and say, okay, let's think about this from a rational perspective. Let's be in the middle of that road. Let's not jump over and throw a stone because someone's throwing them at us. Um, which really is what we do a lot on social media when you're talking about, like, the comments hurt, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a s- less barbaric way of throwing stones at someone. Right? I mean, we're still doing it, what they did in the Bible. Um, so we just need to not throw that stone. And Well, in what way is destroying someone's reputation, destroying their ability to make a living, destroying their, you know, they used to call it slander, and you could take people to court for that. Really? Right, you know, because if you accuse someone of slander, and you could make the case that they were deliberately trying to destroy your reputation destroy your productivity, whatever, and that they were building that all around lies and assumptions, you could take them to court. The problem is the court system couldn't handle all the slander cases now, so it's given over to the court of public opinion, and people just want to believe certain things are true about certain people. Mm -hmm. And that means that, well, you can say whatever you want about Donald Trump as long as you're saying it to people who agree with you. You can say whatever you want about Joe Biden, as long as you're saying it to people who agree with you. Mm -hmm. And then it doesn't have to be true. No. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be true, as long as you're saying it to people who agree with you. And when you've got a forum like Facebook, for example, where there's billions of users, well, you'll find somebody who agrees with you, even a bunch of people who agree with you. Mm -hmm. And that can give you a false sense of righteousness. That can give you a sense that you're correct about something. It can make you think that because 600 people agree with you that you must be right. But 600 ain't nothing compared to 6 million. Mm -hmm. 600 ain't nothing compared to 6 billion. You know, it's a numbers game. Yeah. Um, I joke all the time because my podcast, the channel, God, Heart, and Mind, that podcast channels had like 20,000 downloads, but only took 20 years. Yeah. Which means it doesn't really mean a whole lot. Right. You know, so so you and I'll be lucky if we can get a few hundred people to listen to this podcast. Right. And that's great. And the ones that keep listening will either find it informative or they'll find something to agree with. Yeah. So have you and I really made a big dent in the world? Probably not. But if there's one or two people that are blessed and served by this, then it was worth doing. Right. I mean, these are... This conversation that we're having right now is just the same kind of conversation that you and I have often had. Right. And we just thought it'd be a good idea to go ahead and record it because somebody else might find that beneficial too. 
And I think that aligns with our mission of making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Yes. You know, if you're listening and you are a disciple of Jesus and maybe even of Shiloh Church, right? And then you're listening in, you can take that upon yourself to be a disciple and to go tell someone the truth that you heard yeah. or what you learned. Yeah. Um, and that false sense of security, what did, what did you call it when... Um, other people agree with you and you feel this intent. yeah it gives you a delusional sort of sense of security like yeah or sense of righteousness is righteousness what I yes you know so, which is a word that just kind of means rightness yeah you know yeah i overheard a conversation somewhere in the past week of someone who's a very loud talker so i heard the whole thing and i was actually behind kind of a wall so i wasn't involved but the person was talking to another person and they said they were talking about church Believe it or not, this was not at Shiloh. This was somewhere in the public. And this person tells this other person, yeah, well, I don't, I don't go to church because I don't need to go to church. And the person was like, oh, okay, well, why is that? And they said, well, I was talking with my aunt, and they were of the same denomination. And, and the aunt had said, well, yeah, if you don't sin, there's no reason to go to church. And he said, I don't sin, so I don't need to go to church. <laughs> and there was something in my mind that was just like, I was like, what kind of theology is that? You know, and so I think that's a good example of like he he had someone who told him that, who informed him that. And he thought, well, that sounds right. So then he has someone and he feels this sense of security where he can go out in public and tell a complete stranger that pretty radical view of why you go to church. Like, that is so not not yeah. why you should go to church. And also, we're all sinners. I don't, I don't understand the notion of someone who does not sin other than Jesus. Well, um, but it gives you an idea of what we are, I don't want to say up against, because it sounds like it's a war or something. But what, if our goal is to help people come to a saving relationship with Christ, First of all, we need to do it for his sake because he wants us to. And no matter what it costs me and no matter how hard it is, if my master wants me to do it, I love him and I'm going to do it for his name's sake, mm. for love of him. So the first reason you do it is because you love the master and the master has said, I want you to go and make disciples. But the other reason that you make disciples is because you love the lost like he did mm -hmm. see he loved you so much that he was thinking of you while he died on the cross and for him death on the cross was only part of what was going on he did suffer a physical death he did suffer a horrible torturous death but that in itself isn't the thing it's the fact that he took upon himself all the consequence of our sin all the consequences of Adam's fall. He took upon himself the burden of a debt that he didn't uh, accrue and paid it off for us. And he did this because there's something cosmic about it all that is more than us. There's a world out there beyond our comprehension, a realm beyond our comprehension, where good and evil are at odds and God is the supreme good and has a plan of redemption and judgment for the world. But for the moment, we are pawns and the prize. We are part of how each uses us like players on the chessboard to defeat the other, but we're also what the victor takes away, which is this bride for Christ. Now, that's a somewhat oversimplified explanation, but it gives you a way to think about what's going on. Because we are both partakers in our own experience of this present realm, which isn't necessarily reality. You know, there's a lot about where we live and breathe that could be more like the matrix than we think, right? Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is that we are not in control. We are not driving the agenda. What we are is instruments in God's hands or instrument in God's enemy's hands. And if we don't actively partake with God 
as Peter says, being partakers of the divine nature, then by default we're in we're working for the enemy. Mm. To the extent that the enemy, the the extent that the the enemy uses us is dependent upon our our cooperation and collaboration. In the same way, the extent to which God's Spirit uses us has a lot to do with our cooperation and collaboration. Because one of the things that makes us the prize is our free will. Mm. So, you know, we are we are reaching people who are lost because Jesus reached us when we were lost. Because he thought of me when he was on the cross and said, I'm doing this for Dan. I want Dan with me in paradise for all eternity. I'm doing this for Adrian because I want Adrian with me in paradise for all eternity. That's what he was doing. And he asks us to do the same. And so if you approach someone who is like the Apostle Paul, radically devoted to your destruction with compassion and love, and you say, I'm frightened of you like Ananias did. I have every good reason to be frightened of you, but the Lord compels me to help you, and so I will. And at great personal risk, Ananias helps Paul in his time of need and becomes one of Paul's mentors for his new Christian paradigm. That's compassion. Mm -hmm. That's obedience to the Lord. That's love for the master that drove Ananias. He's one of the unsung heroes and what's, a, what's funny is, is there's a more famous Ananias who was someone who didn't get it and died suddenly because of it. Oh, you yeah. Know, Ananias and Sapphira, right? Right. But this Ananias who was called to come alongside Paul in his time of transition was, you know, an incredible person. Yeah. The courage, the love for the Lord, the love for Paul. I'm afraid of you, but I love you. Because the Lord loves you, mm -hmm. you know. And so that's the approach we have to take with people is we don't save them because we need more people in our church to fill the pews. Right. We don't save them or seek them because we want them to believe like we believe. We don't try to help people because it helps us. We help people because it pleases the Lord when we obey him and it becomes a way that he uses us as a means of grace for that person. You know, uh, Monday I got a call from somebody who needed something. <laughs> if I publicize this, I might get asked more than I can afford to be asked. But <laughs> someone called and asked for something and I felt in this case that I was justified in helping. And then I met this person and I found out that I could communicate in love my ability to relate to what they were going through because I have children with disabilities, because I've made trips back and forth to the hospitals in the big cities many, many times and so on and so forth. And so my decision to hear the voice of God say, this one you should do. So if you're listening and you're thinking, well, sounds like, I could, you know, he's a pushover. No, sometimes the Lord says, no, don't help him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so sometimes yes, sometimes no. Just understand that. But in this yes moment, I not only gave this person what they needed, but I gave them something else, which was my testimony. Mm. As someone further down the road, I could say, it's going to be okay. It'll never be what you thought it would be, but it's going to be okay. And the Lord is faithful. Just like when you needed help, he prompted me to help you. Mm. So I bore witness with total compassion for this person. I never told them, so can I expect to see you on church, in church on Sunday? I didn't say anything like that. Right. I just did the good deed, and they know where they got it. They know that they called here and they got it. Yeah. I don't have to say any more than that. Right. They, she, she knew from my countenance that she was in the presence of someone who loves Jesus. 
not because I'm a saint or a particularly good model of a Christian, but just the sense that what I was doing was done out of pure compassion. Mm-hmm. That's how you change the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Can't think of a better way to end this podcast. All right. So I'm go glad out. you're keeping track of the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess our message to you is go out, be obedient, be courageous, and be loving and empathetic. And that's all. Amen. God bless yeah. you, my friends. Bye.